Good evening, uh, everybody, and welcome to uh, the October uh, Cabinet meeting. Um, item one, apologies for absence and declarations of interest. Apologies first. Um, none received. Declarations of interest. Um, in respect of the item on pooling business rates as an Essex County Councillor, Chairman. Thank you. Um, item two, minutes of the previous meeting. Are there a true record uh, of what took place? Happy with those. Um, item three, matters arising from those minutes. Um, CA 26 to 28. CA 29 and 30. CA 31 to 33. CA 34 and 35, 36 to 39. Chairman, on 39 it should read refugee working group rather than refuge working group. Well done. Thank you. Indeed. Okay, thank you. So, otherwise there are no matters arising. In which case we move on to item four, questions or statements from non-executive members of the council. We move on to item five, matters referred to the executive. None, there are none. Item six, reports from the performance and audit and scrutiny committees. I have a separate item, Mr. Chairman, at eight. On the agenda. Yes. So we'll take the point there. Um, item seven, um, to receive a report from the Refugee Working Group. I call upon Councillor Redfern. Thank you, um, Chairman. Um, just to give you an update, obviously I um, spoke at um, full council last week and um, said what, what we were doing um, but in the meantime there has been a, a, some development um, there's been an officers meeting at um, Essex to discuss um, the situation and um, as we understand it at the moment there's an expectation that there could be about 5,000 refugees arriving in the district uh, in the country um, this side of Christmas um, Essex are expected to take um, between five and ten families um, this side of Christmas and they're asking for um, councils to come forward and make an offer of accommodation. We are looking at, we, we do happen to have a property that we've just literally it's just sort of come forward today. We have a, we have a property that um, we have advertised twice and it has um, it hasn't been accepted by anybody um, because of the there is no parking with it but it is quite a central property we haven't made any firm decision yet but we are looking at that and it is our intention I hope to um, go back to Essex County Council and make an offer to house a, to house a family but obviously this will depend on what um, what needs this particular fat or what needs the families have because obviously some people will need to be uh, could be victims of, diff of different things um, and it has been suggested that they may need to be near a main hospital in which case obviously we're not going to be um, suitable but we are um, uh, monitoring 
well, we are offering, and we will let you know what happens on that. Um, and really, everything else is pretty much the same as we discussed last week. Where is our property? It's, it's in Saffron Walden. In Saffron Okay, thank you for that. And I, I you know, fully support uh, the aspiration that we, if we can to put that house forward. Uh, Councillor Dean. I, I notice that um, the way this is at the moment being worked in the UK is that uh, they want people who come to this country to have independent living accommodation rather than staying with families. Uh, I've, I've only heard that as a fact. I mean, for instance, I remember on a number of occasions uh, seeing on television individuals living with families in Germany, so they've clearly got a different approach to it here. And at the council, extraordinary council meeting we had in September, we heard that there were quite a, a number of people in the district who were prepared to take people in, but I, I think the bulk were within their own families or within their own households. Do, do we have any uh, hard information about this kind of distinction between what's acceptable and what's not and, and why that is, that, the, that the, essentially living with families is ruled out totally? The Councillor Redfern or Mr Harborough? Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy um, to answer that. Um, our understanding is, is that um, the, the refugees we are likely to get here are um, going to be vulnerable, and they do, and they potent, we don't, we're not expecting um, single people. It seems to be it's potentially families, um, and it is quite important that they have um, independent living arrangements. Um, we are keeping um, a record of anybody that's offered um, accommodation, so that if things change, we have got this, we have got a list. So, in fact, anybody that's contacting us about Anything, any office of help, we're keeping a record of who, of who they are and what they've offered so that if, if it comes forward in the future that we need them, then we've got that bank of people. Um, and um, I think you will have seen the um, press release we, we did, um, which has gone out last week, so it should be in the papers this week, asking for people with self-contained um, accommodation to come forward. Um, that's only gone out, will only have gone out um, yesterday and today, so I haven't actually had any response yet. But at the moment, as far as we know, it is just um, self-contained accommodation. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. We'll move on to item eight, which is the uh, <coughs> local plan review. Um, uh, Mr Webb's name is against it, but I also note under point five that uh, Councillor Dean will speak to the item. I don't know whether Mr Webb is starting. No, the only reason my name is on it is that it's a copy of the report that went to scrutiny. Okay, I call upon Councillor Dean. Yes, thank you, Mr Chairman. Whilst members and uh, officers uh, present tonight will be aware of the background to this report, for the benefit of anybody, anyone listening at home tonight, I, I'd just like to set out the context. The Council's former draft local plan was undergoing an examination in public last November and December. Partway through the exercise, the examining, examining inspector decided to suspend the public sessions as he felt he could not conclude the examination satisfactorily. At the start of this year, the Council decided to withdraw the former local plan and has subsequently begun creating a new one. 
The Council also decided to seek advice through a review by the National Planning Advisory Service into the local plan process that ran from 2006 up to 19th of December 2014. The review would be expected, or at that time was expected, to identify the key steps moving forward to provide assurance that the then new planning policy working group that it would improve on what had gone before and in the way that the local plan would be produced, the new local plan would be produced. The Planning Advisory Service, which I may refer to as PAS or PAS on occasions, is a, a national advisory service for local authorities and was chosen as it is competent in all aspects of planning. It is and would therefore be seen as independent from the Council and independent from those who were being reviewed, in other words, us. I have no reason to believe that this is what has been delivered, or was delivered last month in September and went to the uh, Scrutiny Committee. I am satisfied that an objective report that is independent from the internal influence has been delivered. The report is critical. I'd just like to say something about the report and its contents. The structure of the PAS report is set out in the covering report to your agenda. Uh, this is the procedural report that Mr. Webb has just referred to. The Cabinet has been provided with all seven sections of the report and these are available in your meeting pack and on the Council's website. What I intend to do tonight is pull out some of the highlights from the report, mainly those raised at the Scrutiny Committee meeting in September. Cabinet members have the minutes of that meeting in their document pack. I will conclude by suggesting a way forward. The key fact is that the report contains a large number of recommendations, though not in tabular form, which I feel should be acted upon, and the public should have the means to satisfy themselves that the extensive advice has been acted upon or is being acted upon as we move forward. I will say at this point that it is my opinion that many of the recommendations are already being put into practice. The Council has not sat around for eight months waiting for better ideas to be dispatched to it by post. As a member of the new planning working group, I can say personally that apart from the odd wobble, I believe the Council is on a better path second time round. I started off the discussion at the September Committee by saying that the meeting was an opportunity to question the authors about their report and to ensure good understanding. I also said that it was not the night to put individual members or officers under the spotlight for their roles in what went wrong. It is, however, my intention to talk in due course to a, a few select and remaining participants on a one-to-one -one basis to satisfy myself that everyone is now plugged into the new way of producing a local plan. So, Chairman, the feedback from the meeting, I've got a, a number of points. First one is that I will start with a reassurance. PAS considered that there had been no impropriety during the years that led to the demise of the local plan. 
they felt that there was insufficient narrative in the old plan for anyone not involved to work out how it had progressed from its inception in 2006 to its demise in 2014. I guess that means that they couldn't work out how and why all the various twists and turns on housing numbers and distribution strategies had come about. And the solution, as I'm sure you agree with me, Mr Chairman, is from now on is, is maximum transparency. On a, a lack of trust from the public and others, they advised explain it, explain it, explain it again and try to gain public buy-in. Uh, and that's something I think we can give further thought to as time moves forward. The authors were quite clear that the inspector had acted consistently and probably in the way he had suspended the examination in public and identified the weaknesses in the plan. The authors were concerned that there had been a deficit of formal review points during the long progress of the last plan to take account of major disagreements, of which we all know there were many. We need to be more sensitive to major disagreements, if there are any, this time round, and ensure that there are ways of addressing them that are evidence-based and not founded in political ideology that cannot be justified. After all, King Canute knew nine centuries ago that the tide will come in whatever rules we may choose to write, or he might have chosen to write. There was a major criticism of past sustainability assessments that had seemed to some extent designed to provide a justification for suspect political decisions but were not based on well-founded and in part statutory methodologies. It was said that the Council's new approach seemed encouraging and likely to avoid that trap in future. So good news there. They said that evidence and non Electoral man uh, sorry, they said that evidence and not electoral mandate must rule a local plan. The report used the phrase to quote prevailing political desires, which the authors said referred to past attempts to reduce the housing numbers based on a political desire rather than on any objective evidence. They also used the lovely term dodgy assumptions to describe past discussions by the old working group that migration of people into the district could be ignored when assessing one's local housing need. Obviously, this uh, terminology will be unnecessary in future. We were advised to develop a vision for Uttlesford to match our sense of place. Uh, I, I guess the first step would be to agree a common understanding of what sense of place means and then get on and... Uh, Craft, craft a vision. Discussion took place on how the planning policy working group and the cabinet could ensure all members, all council members, knew what was going on at each stage to avoid unnecessary conflict and misunderstanding. Uh, they used the word terms like workshops, focused members briefings, more workshops, bite-sized masterclasses, Call them what you will. I think we need to do more of that or find other ways of, of avoiding the uncertainties that occurred last time. Of course, we all know how difficult it is to get elected members to these sessions in high numbers. 
and I hear there may have been a temporary wobble at last week's council meeting when I was away on holiday. So other ways of informing people may be needed in future to avoid unnecessary misunderstandings. PAS was asked for recommendations on achieving best community engagement, best forms of community engagement. They suggested that the council need to remain clear and consistent in what we tell people, ensure that the public is allowed to add value where there are options, but to tell the public clearly when things can't change. And finally, we were told to reassess the role of scrutiny in the process to maximise the value it adds to the process. So, Chairman, these were what I feel were the highlights of, from the evening. The rest is in the report and its several sections. So I'd like to conclude with um, a, a few thoughts on next steps. I'm sure that no one wants a report to be put on a shelf to gather dust. It was commissioned following what was probably the most traumatic event for the Council in my 28 years as a member. The report does not contain a single simplistic action plan for the future, so I can't ask the Cabinet and its policy, planning policy working group to go away and tick boxes. The suggestions for better behaviour are scattered throughout the documents. Last month, the Scrutiny Committee welcomed the report and thanked the Planning Advisory Service people for their work. I hope that the Cabinet will do the same. The Cabinet and its Planning Policy Working Group were asked to take account of the findings of the report and the Scrutiny Committee's deliberate, are asked, should I say, were, sorry, were at the September meeting asked to take account of the findings of the report and the Scrutiny Committee's deliberations. At the meeting, the Leader of the Council, you Mr Chairman, offered to provide feedback to my committee on what is done, what is done about it. May I suggest that the, the way forward would be for an officer's high-level report on advice and recommendations that flow from the PAS report to be put to the next meeting of the Planning Policy Working Group, that this report is in, in some way contains an action plan of things to be done uh, or that are already being done. This will allow the Council to demonstrate to the public that lessons learned are indeed being taken seriously and that a new and better local plan regime is now in place and will continue to be followed. So thank you for listening to me. Happy to take any questions. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, I was at your scrutiny meeting and uh, have obviously um, <coughs> heard a presentation of the report, I think, on two occasions now. And um, it's, uh, you know, I'm grateful that uh, you believe that uh, you know, much has been taken into account and is part of the way of doing things now. I'm quite happy to have uh, a summary. Uh, my hesitation about that is that, as you say, there is no summary actually in the PAS report. Um, and it, it's, it's sort of intertwined throughout. So we mustn't be too simplistic in terms of our summary, but there are some key points that we need to keep asking ourselves that we're getting right around consultation, around the sustainability report, around the um, 
the um, making no assumptions, um, which we could certainly um, uh, create, I think. I'm looking to Mr. Harborough now to create a sort of headline um, document that uh, we keep referring back to to make sure that we're on track. I think collectively we'll do that anyway because everybody's read the report and, as I say, there's, there's a lot more to it than just a summary. But um, I take your point. And, um, it was a good report. It was helpful. Um, I didn't agree with all of your summary, but I'm not going to argue with it. But uh, it was a constructive report, and um, it, you, you know, it's in all our interests that uh, we take account and uh, and and get it right, uh, or at least get our our plan approved, shall we say, uh, this time. I don't know if anybody else wishes to comment. Council Lodge. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, a couple of points. One for. Uh, one mainly for Councillor Dean and one for the Cabinet. Um, I think uh, Councillor Dean said that you were going to um, have this as an ongoing work plan effective for scrutiny. So I just wondered if you'd given any thoughts as to how you might do that, how frequently, because of course the work plan is, is linked to further scrutiny. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I think that... That was for you and I that get my me, question in a minute. Um, well, I think this is something that we um, perhaps should um, next discuss at the um, Planning Policy Working Group at the end of uh, November and uh, work something out. I'm not coming here with a, uh, a thought through or a rigid, uh, rigid proposal or worked out proposal. I did speak to um, Martin Payne, who's uh, been leading the uh, work on the local plan, he's quite comfortable with the idea of producing some form of document that takes this to the planning policy working group. After all, that's where the work is now being done or considered, and, and I think it's important that that group is fully apprised of uh, the key issues. Um, so maybe we can work it out over time rather than uh, trying to spend our time now deciding precisely what uh, methodology should be used to keep in track. But I think, you know, my, the point I, I made, I think, it's, I think it's essential that collectively as a council, we, we in six months, 12 months' time, are able to say these were the things that we were told we should do and these are the things that we are doing. Uh, or these are the additional things that we're now doing because we've thought of other ways of improving it. You know, so, so, so that you know, so that it's shown, as I said, that it's not, this is not put on the shelf. Um, I, I don't know whether that satisfies Councillor Lodge at this point. Well, I think uh, 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 Councillor Lodge is going to come back with his supplementary comment. But I think, uh, and I'll bring in Councillor Barker, but I think your, uh, the point you just made, actually, is that, of course, there's some uh, important uh, advice in that report. But your point was that, you know, we, we do have our own ideas about getting this right. And I think the, if the primary objective is to uh, get a local plan adopted. Uh, I think that's in all our interest to do that in terms of giving ourselves the protection. Um, and this is a part of getting it adopted. It's, it's, a bigger, it's bigger than that. We've got to get the whole process right. But this is, you know, this is helpful. And uh, you refer, one refers back to it to make sure that uh, we are doing it accordingly. Um, Councillor Barker, then back to Councillor Lodge. Thank you, Chairman. Um, Chairman, my point really was, was not directly to this report. As you say, this is part of it. But part of it is the process we're now at and the consultation. You know, we have three public events, whatever. We have the consultation out there. 
Um, and it's desperately important, not just that the public respond, but that actually the group leaders in this room make sure that their members are up to speed. Not many members come along to the planning policy working group. You know, we didn't have that many members at council last week. It's all very well to update members on those occasions, but we need to make sure all our members are up to speed on this so that they can ask questions of us um, um, you know, as we move forward to make sure that we do this you know, with everybody understanding yeah, I mean, I, I will respond. I, I agree with Councillor Barker. I think communication is the, as, as I actually mentioned in terms of one of the recommendations, communication yeah. is the key to um, avoiding some of the pitfalls that we got into last time. In other words, uh, and, and at the end of the day, as we, we I think we all acknowledged, um, many people may not agree with the final outcome in this. Uh, it's almost certain, but at least we've got to make sure that they know how we got to where we get uh, and, and that they can't uh, feel unhappy about that. And so it is about telling people and giving them the opportunity to uh, contribute their ideas and some of them we ought to be able to take on board and others we may not be able to do. But. Okay, thank you. Councillor Lodge. Yes, so just to finish off that before I go to my second point, I think that it was uh, the issue came up this afternoon that... Um, uh, at the workshop on garden cities so for the benefit of those people who weren't there there was the issue uh, the discussion of how we uh, how we keep the whole of the membership uh, up to date and I think that that was the problem with the cabinet meeting last week that uh, too many members were not aware of the uh, of the scrutiny sorry the um, uh, the consultation document I think we need to look better as to how we can publicize that to the, to the whole council as the as the process proceeds so then coming on to my second point, uh, and probably the most substantial one was that um, both very much appreciative of the work that is being done by the, um, uh, the various people looking at and scrutinising the plan. And my own view at the moment is very much to draw a line under that and say that looking forward is very much the most, the most important thing. And I have a lot of confidence in uh, the process that is going on. And we have ongoing problems with the mics. Um, but I'm too near. Thank you. Um, the second I said was for um, uh, was for cabinet, but it's actually for cabinet and executive, and that is that of course a major and, and it may be decided it's not appropriate for discussion at this point on this agenda. But um, obviously the, the main architect or the main administrative architect of the, of the plan going forward has resigned and we need to ensure that we've got that, that process under control. Now I understand that um, the recruitment process drew, drew a blank as of today so I just wonder at the moment we could uh, maybe look at the plan going forward to say how are we, are we going to look at the old list of uh, people who, uh, who were in the initial uh, selection process should we maybe look to getting a consultant in but I think we have very little time to make sure that the plan going forward is managed on a, on a, a really sound basis uh, well I, uh, I think Councillor Redfern wants to come in but I'll just uh, answer the, your last point uh, which I totally agree with you I mean it's absolutely essential that we are sufficiently resourced uh, um, and I'm meeting the Chief Executive uh, tomorrow morning and number one item on the agenda will be exactly that so um, there'll be somebody out there that we can get even if it's on an interim basis uh, so but we all agree um, it, is, it is fundamental that there's sufficient resource Councillor Redfern 
Sorry. Well, this is on your um, previous comment, John, um, about um, making sure that members are aware of what's going on, and you were referring to last week's meeting. And you know, for me, the, the planning policy working group has all three leaders in that in that group and it really is down to the leaders of each individual group to make sure that their own members know what's going on and the papers that you're saying that people weren't aware of um, everybody will have had those for at least a week before they come out to the meeting so it, it, it's down to you three guys in my opinion to make sure that your groups are fully informed of what's, of what's going on um, I don't really know what I don't really see what else um, planning policy working group can do other than to, to make sure you three know exactly what's going on and, and pass that on to your own members, but um, I could be wrong. Councillor Lodge. If you don't really know, at some stage I'll give you a dozen, dozen suggestions. Thank you. Right, I don't really want to have a, a rehash of last week's council meeting uh, but um, it, it, let's just say that it's very important uh, that uh, communication is at the root of all we do. Okay moving on to item 9 uh, Treasury Management. Outside, just to conclude for those listening there is no vote, vote to be taken on item 8 it was a point of information. Uh, moving on to item 9 um, where there is a recommendation um, Treasury Management outturn for 1415 Councillor Howell Thank you, Leader. Um, this is indeed uh, an item whereby Council is recommended to approve the 2014-15 Treasury Management Outturn as set out in the report. Um, it's an important paper, so I will speak to it um, in some detail, if you don't mind. It, it's a requirement under our Constitution that the Cabinet receives an, an annual statement uh, on our Treasury Management activities. It's a responsibility of the finance function, and they manage our cash flows, our bank accounts, our deposits, investments and borrowings. And the objective as set out in item 2 is to manage our risk effectively in order to ensure the security of the funds and to ensure that there is sufficient liquidity to enable our commitments to be met, but also to generate income and minimise costs. Um, and there is clearly a, a significant financial risk to the business or to the organisation, the authority, should we get this wrong. Um, I will walk you through the paper, if you don't mind, because we are, in many respects, governed by the SIPFA Code of Practice on Treasury Management, and we also take independent financial advice from Arlington Close. We also need to remind ourselves that we exist in a wider macroeconomic environment of record low interest rates. Anyone who relies on returns from bank investments for their income will know that very well. There's some indication that interest rates will rise, uh, but not most certainly to the levels we've seen in 2008. And the suggestions that the Bank of England may raise interest rates in 2016, I recall that statement for the last four or so years, it's always 12 months away and never quite arrives. Um, so we need to put that in, in context. Um, dealing with the Treasury position, item one sets out the Treasury position our borrowings and our investments and the overall net treasury position and I think I need to point out that there was no need in 2014-15 for us to take external borrowings to finance our 
uh, capital expenditure. And the table below sets out the, uh, on, on, on the bottom of page 67, I, uh, item 2, sets out our overall borrowing position. You'll be familiar with the table 3, which identifies the very, very significant loan that we have in place, 88.407 million, as part of the reform of council tax funding, oh, sorry, of council, house, uh, council houses. Um, and moving on, uh, investment 7 uh, talks about the approach that we take when we place money or our investments on deposit. So the intentions are that we should prioritise the security and the, and the liquidity of our investments over yield. And that's an important overriding principle. It's somewhat different from the position a number of years ago, where I think the guidance from government was that yield was perhaps a little bit more important, and you'll know the consequences of that. We have a clear guidance that we place funds with UK banks and building societies, and there's a minimum credit rating of triple B+. Um, and the table on the top of page 69 itemises the categories of investments that we are the uh, entities that we place deposits with, their credit rating, the cash limits on each, and the time limits in which we apply. And I do need to note that at the discretion of the Assistant Director of Finance, uh, in the case of local, UK local authorities, a cash limit of £3 million and a time limit of 182 days is applied. Um, table 9 um, shows that all deposits uh, were repaid during the year without difficulty and it summarises the investment activity during the course of the year. And on 12, uh, table 12, you have a very interesting list of the entities that we've lent to, um, both local authorities, banks, building societies and the debt management office. Um, now, in keeping with the Department of uh, Communities and Local Government guidance on investments, we ensure that we remain, uh, maintain sufficient levels of liquidity, uh, on average just over a million pounds, one million and seventy-nine thousand um, pounds. And we have set out in Appendix A the prudential indicators that we are required to publish and set each year. Uh, and officers confirm that we've complied with our prudential indicators for 2014-15 uh, as were approved as part of the Council's uh, Treasury Management Strategy Statement. Uh, that is my port, report and my rec our recommendation is that we approve the 2014-15 Treasury Management Outturn. Thank you, Councillor Howell. Any uh, comments, questions on that report? No? I, I ask uh, just one thing, and uh, very clear about uh, what our criteria are for our investment, and I'm sure that's uh, right. I would be interested to know, let's just take it within Essex to start off with, whether our list of investments is completely typical or whether any authority has gone beyond that list. It's not an answer, a question to answer now, but uh, I think um, it would be interesting to know that. That doesn't mean that we're going to do it, but we should be aware if others are doing something else, because obviously we're getting a pretty measly return, understandably, under the uh, circumstance with the current interest rates and um, um, return uh, on general investment. But it would be worth uh, under understanding what the bigger picture is. 
If there are no other uh, questions, then I put it to you that the Cabinet is recommended to approve the 2014-15 Treasury Management Outturn as set out in the report. This is at paragraph 5 in this report. All those in favour? Those against? Unanimous. Item 10, Business Rates Pooling in 2016-17. Again, Councillor Howell. Thank you, Leader. Um, I definitely drawn the most difficult paper to present this one. The principle is relatively simple. The detail is pretty challenging. Um, I think it warrants some explanation, if you don't mind, uh, because the, the, the devil is in the detail. Um, prior to the 1st of April 2013, all business rates income was paid over to central government in full. Um, However, following the introduction of the Business Rates Retention Scheme, 50% 50 is now paid over to central government, and we retain 50%. 40% of that effectively comes to us at the District Council, 9% to the County Council, and 1% to the the Fire Authority. And officers assure me that there is a very complex array of tariffs, top-ups, levies, safety nets, and various other adjustments to avoid significant adverse fluctuations during the course of the year. Um, Now, the consequence under the old scheme was that any increase in business rates, revenues or income was immediately paid over and there was no direct benefit to us as a local authority from trying to improve uh, and increase our business rates income. So the new system effectively tries to incentivise us Um, It tries to incentivise us to pursue economic growth uh, by allowing us to retain an element of the upside. Um, This paper points out that it's possible for for groups of local authorities to be financially better off if they pool their business rates compared to each of us working alone, Um, as it's possible for us effectively to retain more of the additional funds. And this paper sets out the methodology that's used to, to support that statement. Um, now, my understanding is that in 2014-15, um, the business rate pooling didn't go ahead. Last year, or rather 15-16, is the, this year. <laughs> 15-16 is the first year that it has gone ahead, but we've not been a member. So effectively, we're considering joining the pool for next year, 16-17. What I also need to point out is that the uh, recent announcements around business rates reform, and in particular that local authorities are going to retain 100% of the sums collected, makes it possible that we won't be having such a pool going forward. There will perhaps be no reason for it. So we may be looking at this as a one-off event. And there's a timeline, however, that we have to consider whether we want to go ahead with this, and that is the 30th of October. Um, So the recommendation is that we approve in principle joining the Essex Business Rates Pool administered by Essex County Council, and we approve the delegated authority to be given to the Section 151 officer in consultation with the finance portfolio holder for the pooling proposal and for the various governance arrangements. Now, the devil is in sections 10 onwards, and I'm now going to attempt to explain how tariffs and top-ups and safety nets and levies all interact to make this, on balance, a recommendation for Council. Some authorities 
collect more rates, business rates, than the government has determined that they need to fund their activities. Um, and so <coughs> these councils effectively pay a tariff to central government. Other authorities raise insufficient business rates to cover their overhead um, or the, um, the, the, uh, the, the funds they require, and they receive top-ups. So we have either a tariff authority or you're a top-up authority. Um, it would appear that we are a tariff authority, um, so that puts us on the positive side, as it were. Now, during the course of the year, if you've got your sums wrong and you end up with a reduced level of business rates income um, following the, the various tariff and top-up adjustments, then you receive safety net payments. Um, and we do not expect or forecast that in 2016-17 or in 2017-18 we will receive any safety net um, payments. Now, if we grow our business rates income during the course of the year, we have effectively to pay a proportion across the central government. 50% of that is paid in the form of the levy, and we effectively retain the balance. So our total exposure, or our total opportunity for us, is effectively 50% of any growth that we can achieve outside of, outside of the pool. The advantage of pooling together is that if you are able to include within your pool um, one or more top-up authorities, then you effectively adjust your levy. Keep up with me if you can. I'm struggling. <laughs> um, you effectively uh, reduce your potential levy that you might have to pay across the central government from 50% to 0%. So we have set out on 14 the various local authorities that make up um, the, the potential business rate pool um, in 2016 and 17, showing that we didn't participate last time and the opportunity is for us to, uh, to participate this time. Now, if we've got this far, we can go to an even greater level of detail about how the system works underneath it. And I have to say that I have, I have, I'm not very good with Excel, but I'm assuming that somebody has done these sums to demonstrate how you effectively work out at the end of it that you are better off. I could go through each of the, me the, the, the entire mechanism, but can I just take you to paragraph 20, which says that currently we would pay into the pool £520,000 with a levy rate of 50%. Were we to receive back, under the formula set out above, um, the repayment from the pool, we would effectively pay £200,000 across, putting us in a, net, in a net positive position of £320,000. So that's the, the size of the prize for doing that. I do need to flag that there are potentially risks associated with this. You are effectively pooling with others and you are relying on the fact that your adjustments, your expected uh, business rates income, does not deviate significantly from your expectations. There are clearly issues around the uh, various appeals that have taken place. I'm assured that we expect or disputed appeals and other issues which would affect our business rates 
or our rateable values to have been settled and for the provisions to be recognised prior to 2016 and 17. Clearly, were there to be a significant change in our, our, our business rates income during the course of the year, we would potentially have an exposure. And overall, were there to be a negative movement of 28 million in business rates across the entire county, then the pool would not work. The variation for ourselves is 2.8 million. And the, the mechanism is set out on, um, on Appendix A. Is it Appendix A? Yes, it is Appendix A. It sets out what would be the position were Malden not to, um, to take part. Uh, and I'm told that another that a table has been uh, sorry a paper has been tabled because the boxes weren't quite large enough on the final column of t Appendix A, um, but the tabled uh, paper shows the, the net position, and also Appendix B sets out the variation, the negative variation that would be required um, for us to. For the, for the pool effectively not to work. Right, now there's also a timetable, but that, broadly speaking, sets out the proposition. Uh, and I will rely entirely on officers to answer all questions <laughs> beyond this. <laughs> Thank you, Councillor Howell. Uh, you did uh, very well. So, in summary, this year, on our best calculation... This authority would be £320,000 better off by joining the pool. Next year. Next, 1617, yeah. Uh, OK, open for questions. Yeah. Councillor Dean. Well, my first question is, how long do we have to complete the examination? Questions. <laughs> See whether we've understood it. Um, what I haven't quite got my head around is... Um, Joining the pool rather than being a loner dealing with central government, does it simply mean that the money that we would have to provide to central government instead goes into a pool, local pool, or is this telling me that it's not, it's not, it's not that the amount of figure varies? I, I can't quite work out whether we sort of instead of bailing out Westminster, we're bailing out Malden, for instance. Um, My understanding I, I, on this, but others much more expert than I, is this is a bit like capital gains. If you've got a very good capital gain, you might want to offset it by a loss on a capital gain. Um, and so that basically you're pooling top-ups with tariffs across Essex, is my understanding. But uh, maybe somebody, as I say, more qualified could answer that one. Yes, Councillor Dean. I'm going to pass you over to Charles Campbellat, who's the expert in this area and has, and has put this report together. Thank you, Angela, and thank you, Chair. Um, I'll try my best to explain it. Um, the idea is authorities, district councils, pay to... In, before this arrangement, we, what we do is, especially last year, we paid straight to central government. So last year we paid one million in levy to central government, but we didn't get any of that money back. But if we introduce or if we take part in the pool, it means that the money stays in Essex, 
Because the levy rate is calculated as being zero, it's a, another complicated formula, because that's zero, it means that we don't need to pay any of that money back to central government, or the poor doesn't have to pay back to central government. So it means that we keep all the money, and then, with authorities, we can come together, and there's a, um, a plan on how that amount will be shared. That, the amount that goes into that pool is shared back with uh, district councils. In our case, we get 7% of what we pay into the pool. I mean, I'm just trying to get my head around. Uh, I've forgotten who the um, minister is, <laughs> which relevant minister we're talking about. But um, I mean, the, the, the central government's not going to come up with a scheme whereby, if everybody clubs together in their localities, everybody's better off, and central government isn't better off. So I, I just quite quite see who's balancing the book, the, the, the top-level books here. <laughs> Councillor Howell, I think you've made a very good point. I think this is the somebody very clever noticed that it's almost the law of unintended consequences. So we we have set up a levy scheme that the government assumed would pay out every single year if you happen to be um, a tariff council and you happen to generate more than you were expecting. And then I presume somebody in Essex, or maybe it was another county council, worked out that actually if you did pull both your top-up authorities and your tariff authorities together, there was a potential upside. I suspect, well, I don't know, but I'm assuming, like all things, when when clever people come together, they they miss a detail, as it were. I don't think this this is something that's going to continue into the future. Um, and And it has not worked for all councils every year. This is a relatively recent Uh, opportunity. Um, The amounts are relatively small in the scale of things and within two years if the change in business rates goes through as expected this will close down as an opportunity. Councillor Lodge. Just one point of detail I noticed was that um, Chelmsford actually, having been a member, decided to duck out. I wondered if, uh, if we'd been in touch with them and understood what their rationale was. Um, I'll try and answer that question as well. Um, the idea of the poll is that you need to kind of contribute positively to it. Uh, so if you're in, you have to be in a levy position. So it's a bit like paying a tax into the poll. And if you're not paying a tax into the poll, the, the total um, accumulated um, cash in that poll cannot be distributed back to district authorities. So with Chelmsford, they forecasted that they will not be in a levy position. So they will not be paying a... Uh, in effect, a tax into the poor. So that means that other districts wouldn't be, be able to benefit from that. So they've looked into this in detail and they've decided that this is their position for 1617 and it's best if they stayed out of it, which means that it benefits us because we do not have to kind of contribute to their loss in 1617. Okay. So I suppose the final question uh, for the finance team is your level of confidence around the £320,000. We heard the comments from Councillor Howell um, that it's not an exact science and it, uh, you know, we, we, we could still be affected by a bad debt. But apart from that, we, what level of confidence can you give us? Um, compared, last year we, we recognised a £1 million levy, which we could have 
given that to the poor and received a significant amount of money back. In the future years, we expect not to be in a safety net position, as uh, Councillor uh, Howe has mentioned. Um, this calculation actually also includes Diamond Hanger, so in the, in the event that Diamond Hanger doesn't pay, we, we still kind of we acknowledge that even if that did take place, the amount that we uh, will benefit will be probably possibly be, be more if Diamond Hanger in the event does pay. Okay, that's reassuring. Okay, any more questions? If not, I refer um, Cabinet to the recommendation at paragraph 7 uh, to approve in principle to join the Essex Business Rates Pool administered by Essex County Council to approve delegated authority to be given to the Section 151 officer in consultation with the finance portfolio holder for the pooling proposal and governance arrangements. Those in favour? Those against? Carried unanimously. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we move on to item 11, uh, but we don't change the speaker. Uh, this item is fraud and compliance, and thank you very much indeed for your very helpful contribution. Thank you. Councillor Howell. Um, thank you, Leader. Um, report number three, and, and I confess I'm flagging slightly. I think I used up my brain power on the last one. Um, the purpose of this paper is to, um, to update and inform members on the progress of, of our Essex-wide council tax sharing agreement and also the, the fraud and compliance business case. As you say, the recommendation is for, for members to note and it's for information purposes only. Uh, we have a, an agreement in place with uh, the county council, the fire authority, the police authority and 12 uh, Essex district councils to maximise our council tax collection and to minimise fraud. Um, it's been in place since April 2013 um, and it was updated in, in, in April of this year uh, to include a fraud and compliance business case and that arrangement has uh, a three-year lifespan. <coughs> We have effectively a resource here at Uttlesford, um, which we fund to the cost of about £11,600, and there are various work streams included in this. There's a review of empty homes, the single resident discount review, which was brought to this cabinet probably about three months ago, uh, and in addition there's been the recruitment of two compliance officers. The, um, the empty homes review uh, was completed at the end of September and it identified a total of 38 properties which were previously, occupied, sorry, previously empty and are now occupied and of course we now generate um, council tax from those including new homes bonus in total of £333,751. Um, I can update you on the single resident discount review which is in progress. Letters have gone out to nearly 1,300 recipients. Uh, you will recall that there was a one-month amnesty um, and to date we've identified 12 claims where residents no longer qualify for the discount. Uh, and in addition to that, the compliance officers are looking at a range of individual cases of fraud on housing benefit and council tax. Um, they've identified um, approximately £97,000 worth of overpayment. Um, this, for the most part, relates to housing tax benefits, but an element also relates to council tax and local council tax support, uh, as set out in paragraph 15. Um, 
And I think that probably gives us a broad picture of where we are. We have something called the data warehouse, which sounds rather grander than I suspect it is. It is, in fact, a centralised IT database system which assists us in our works to minimise um, fraud uh, and to ensure full compliance. This is clearly a, a really important piece of work that we do to ensure that public money is properly used to those who should be in receipt of it and those people who should not be in receipt of it do not receive it. So it's a piece of work that is done in, in, in the background as it were but it's, it's essential that public money, that, that, that taxpayers and members of the public have confidence that public money is spent appropriately and properly and focused on the people who should be receiving it. Uh, and then finally, I do need to point out that the, the Department of Work and Pensions has centralised its housing benefit fraud um, service and uh, I understand that in September um, our team were transferred across and all future benefit fraud referrals are being dealt with by the Single Fraud Investigation Service. And that, uh, colleagues, is the report uh, which I would like you to note. Thank you, Councillor Howell, and uh, as you say, this is a report to note, so there would be a vote. Councillor Barker. Uh, could I just seek clarification? Is this work ongoing or is it time limited? Well, well, there, well some, some of this work is most definitely ongoing, so we are constantly reviewing uh, any incorrect recipients of housing tax benefits and council tax benefits and we will do periodic reviews of our single resident discount so this is a, this is a program which is layered if that makes sense so some work is constant and anyone who is in receipt of benefit has to inform and update the council if there is a change in their circumstances if they are no longer eligible but we have a series of one-off programs where we focus on individual items now clearly we we completed a review of the empty homes in September of last year I'd have to defer to officers about how often they recommend you do that exercise but presumably at some point in the future we will want to do that exercise and again periodically we will want to look at the single resident discount review and there may be other work streams which I'm assuming the councillors, that officers will bring to us in due course. Thank you. Any other? Did you want to comment there, Angela? Yeah, I could just like to say that um, generally we look at doing the reviews annually for single person discount and empty homes reviews. Um, when you look at the amount of income generated from that, it's, it's definitely a worthwhile process to do every year. Yeah, I certainly congratulate you in terms of the work and uh, the, um, <coughs> the outcome that uh, you, you've achieved. Councillor Redfern. Thank you, Chairman. I just wanted to pass comment on myself on the um, empty homes um, section because it does seem to generate a remarkable amount of um, extra income. And um, I get so often get asked by people, why is such and such a house empty? It's been empty for ages. I know... Um, Councillor Dean had one that he was, um, felt very strongly about in Stansted. And um, I really do um, want to say that I think the um, guys that deal with the empty homes, it's made, it really has made such a difference. So I just wanted to sort of pass comment on, on that because um, it is something that's newish to us. Yeah, thank you. We echo that comment. Any other 
comments? No, in which case, as I say, item um, for, uh, for noting. So we move on to item 12. Um, this is an item for, a, uh, this is a key decision item. Um, the uh, title is Carnation Nurseries, Cambridge Road, Newport, and I call upon Councillor Redfern. Thank you, Chairman. Um, try and ex um, explain this. Um, basically, um, Bloor Homes have a site in Newport where planning permission was granted with a 40% affordable contribution. This would have been eight properties. They um, have come to us asking if instead of um, working with a housing association or similar, to provide eight affordable homes, would we as a council consider changing what we normally do and taking three of the properties plus, um, as, as a gift plus um, not just over £99,000 and then they would be able to take, so that would give us three affordable properties and then the other five properties they would then be able to use as uh, to sell in the open market. This has been discussed by um, Housing Board and the Tenants Forum and um, on this occasion it was felt that actually it was more important to us to provide eight affordable homes than it was for the council to be gifted three even, even though that does generate us, us to have three more properties would generate us as a council another 22,000 a year in um, income but it was felt um, overwhelmingly felt actually by housing board that we it was more important to us to actually provide eight affordable homes um, rather than taking three being able to provide three affordable homes um, and we, we haven't said that we would never consider this at all obviously different circumstances call for different um, different things um, but on this occasion it was felt that we would refuse this offer and ask them to get, um, continue on to provide the eight affordable homes and so I would like to ask that um, we sort of um, agree, uh, approve that that is the recommendation from Housing Board. So that essentially is item 2A the um, recommendation from the Housing Board not to accept the offer. Not, uh, not, not to accept that offer but also to that in the future should other offers come forward we would consider them on a site-by-site -site basis which is their point b Sorry. yeah okay <laughs> councillor dean i'd like to um endorse the sentiments expressed by councillor redfern i was at the um the the um, housing board that considered this um we did as has been said, agree unanimously. I think the view at the moment is, although there's a great deal of uncertainty about the future of social housing as a, <coughs> you know, as, as a service in the future, but th therefore at the time it was, it was, or at the present time, it's incumbent on us to try and achieve the maximum number of properties we can, and uh, obviously adapt as circumstances change if they change. <coughs> Any other, Councillor Barker? Uh, Chairman, I totally agree that, that we shouldn't accept this, but I do think that it's something that we can't decide here and now. It either has to be, or the principle going forward, it either has to be through the planning policy working group or working with the planning committee. If the planning committee at the planning stage had given permission for this, this would be one thing, but that's, that's not what we're looking at, are we? We're looking at these people looking to vary what conditions they've been given. And I think we're right to whatever, but I'm not sure that it's for this group of people to give a steer 
on whether we should consider these in the future. But Mr Harborough wants to comment. Mr Harborough. Yes, uh, Leader. The planning committee in determining these planning applications considered the obligations, and the obligations offered a choice. The planning committee took the view that either choice would fully meet the obligations to provide affordable housing. That's why the matter has to come before Cabinet, because Cabinet has to make that choice. Okay. Any other comments? I'm going to take this in two parts. I think uh, I sense a... um, Um, an opinion around the table that um, uh, Cabinet uh, follows the recommendation of the Housing Board not to accept the offer of gifted units at the Carnation Nurseries site on the terms laid out in this report. Uh, Those in favour of that? Those against carried unanimously. The second point, um, whether the council should consider future offers of gifted affordable units on developments, uh, my, I, my sense uh, of cabinet is that it, um, uh, it will look at, on this on a scheme-by-scheme basis, uh, but as uh, Councillor Barker has indicated, this would very often be off the back of um, a negotiation at planning committee stage, notwithstanding the qualification that Mr Harbour laid out. So um, the Housing Board recommended that uh, um, Council should consider all future offers of gifted units on a scheme-by-scheme basis um, and in the same format, and I think I sense this is consistent with uh, this, this Cabinet's opinion. Those in favour of that? But, those against carried unanimously. Thank you very much indeed. Um, moving on to item 13, um, which is the Great Dunmo Neighbourhood Development Plan. Councillor Barker. Thank you, Chairman. Chairman, I'm pleased to present the Council's response to the public pre submission consultation on the Great Dunmo Neighbourhood Plan. Following the closure of this consultation on October the 31st, the Neighbourhood Plan Group will make any changes that they feel necessary to the document before submitting it to Uttlesford. Uttlesford will need to satisfy itself that the plan complies with relevant statutory requirements, publicise the plan for six weeks and then submit for independent examination. It's in this light that the the, the responses that we've made have been made to try to help the plan be compliant. Chairman, the Neighbourhood Plan Group must be congratulated on getting to this stage and the responses here from our planning policy, development management and landscape offices are intended to further inform the process ahead of independent examination. The response includes a number of suggestions, including the need for all maps to have an appropriate licence. It asks for statements made to be evidenced. It it suggests further information that could be added to the plan. It asks for missing dates for studies, changes to numbers, and inclusion of sites that now have planning permission. Chairman, it's a very comprehensive response to quite a long document that I have read, and I would like to propose the recommendation that the Cabinet approves the Council's consultation response to the Great Dunmo Neighbourhood Plan pre-submission consultation document. Thank you, Councillor Barker. I realise I've remissed because I haven't asked for a seconder throughout the evening. Could I have a seconder to this proposal, please? Councillor Redfern. I I take advice. Do I need to go back and ask for a seconder for each? No. Okay. Um, Any other comments? Councillor Redfern. Um, just, just a comment really I'm sort of looking enviously at this I really do congratulate um, Great Dunmo of having got to this stage I understand they're the first ones in the district to have um, done this and um, being involved in a 
neighbourhood plan myself. It's an extraordinary amount of work for a bunch of volunteers. So I uh, just really wanted to say well done to Great Dunmo. We have a representative, uh, Councillor Davy, from Great Dunmo. I don't know if you wanted to say anything, Councillor Davy. You're welcome to come. Thank you, Councillor Roth. Now, I hadn't really got anything to say. I just sitting here in anticipation that you all put your hands up. <laughs> I don't think there are any uh, other comments, so we shall try and do just that. I won't repeat the recommendation. You've had it read out to you. Those in favour? Those against? Carried unanimously. So if you want to report that back to Great Dumbo, thank you very much. And I echo my congratulation to have got uh, your neighbourhood plan to the state it is. I think it's excellent. Item 14, assets of community value, um, has been withdrawn. Uh, so we move on to item 15, the transfer of a small piece of land currently part of the Dunmo Depot. Councillor Barker and however I think it's Councillor Barker that's yep. speaking. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Chairman, just to clarify that item 14 was withdrawn because we have had an objection to the listing of the assets of community value which we need to consider. Uh, Chairman, Earlier in the year, there was an incident at our refuse depot in Great Dunmo, and our boundary wall between our site there and 72A High Street was demolished. Um, the demolition of the wall led to considerable damage to 72A High Street, which is now almost remedied. Um, these costs will be covered by our insurance. The cost of rebuilding the wall will also be covered by the insurance, and the wall will remain in the Council's ownership. Following the incident, the council was approached by the owners of 72A to ask whether they could acquire a small triangle of land adjacent to their property to reduce the likelihood of a future occurrence. This piece of land is around 30 metres long and tapers from 4 metres in width down to, to virtually nothing. The piece of land has been valued as garden land at £3,600 and the owners of 72A have offered £5,000. Chairman, the transfer of the parcel would help alleviate the concerns of the occupiers about a future recurrence of a similar incident and therefore is consistent with the improvement of the social well-being of the area. I therefore propose the recommendation that the land in question be sold to the owners of 72A High Street Great Dunmo for £5,000, subject to a covenant restricting its use, their legal cost to be met by the Council, as will the cost of erecting a boundary wall. I so propose. Thank you, Councillor Barker. Do I have a seconder? Councillor Wells. Any comments on this item, which um, was withdrawn from a previous Cabinet meeting, and I think what we now have is a good um, balanced situation. Uh, this site uh, will come back to Cabinet in due course, but um, we have aspirations uh, for this site. Um, and um, uh, as, as, as I indicated, I think this is, a, this is a balanced response to a tricky situation. No other comments, so those in favour of the recommendation, which is that the land be sold... Councillor Barker? No, 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 I'm sorry. sorry. Uh, the land be sold to the owners of 72A High Street, Great Dunmo, for £5,000, subject to a covenant restricting its use. Legal costs will be met by the Council, as will the cost of erecting a boundary wall. Those in favour? Those against? Carried unanimously. Thank you. Uh, this brings us to item 16, Enforcement, Councillor Howell. Thank you, Leader. Uh, enforcement, everyone's favourite subject. Um, 
I've brought a paper tonight to tonight's Cabinet which uh, is seeking to inform members of the Cabinet on the operation of the enforcement team within the Council. Uh, and the purpose of this paper is, is to ask uh, Cabinet members to, to, to note the report. Um, it has been pointed out to me that enforcement is a Council responsibility rather than a Cabinet responsibility. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's very important that we as a Council are seen to take enforcement seriously and to pursue our enforcement responsibilities diligently and with proper force. Um, Derek Jones, who's here this evening and sat very patiently through the previous items, has been identified uh, as the lead member uh, with responsibility for enforcement, and I would welcome his views in addition to the contents of, 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 of this report. It's clear to me that enforcement is a subject that councillors feel very, very strongly about. Um, and I thought that in that context it would be helpful to try and put some context to what we mean as a council by enforcement. Because it's also very clear to me that enforcement means different things to different people. And it's not been helped in us getting clarity on what we mean by enforcement by the fact that we group a number of different categories of actions under a single heading. So for us, enforcement means planning and licensing, environmental health and smoking in the workplace. So quite a range of different activities. Um, I also have to point out, as the member responsible for finance, that there is a finite resource available to us when we look at any one of our services and enforcement is no different. And I would welcome cabinet members and other councillors' views on, on enforcement because it, it, it occurs to me that I am much more aware of enforcement issues in the last four years than I was previously. And I'm unsure whether why that might be. I previously represented um, a Saffron Alden ward and I think in the four years that I served as a member um, representing Audley Ward, I don't think I had a single enforcement issue brought to my attention. That having been said, in the five years or four and a half years that I've represented the Samford Ward, I've had very many enforcement issues brought to my attention. And so I would welcome the views of councillors as to whether enforcement is a, an issue that concerns rural wards more than urban wards. Um, I'm very conscious that in the urban environment, boundaries are perhaps more closely defined and there's a history and a tradition as to where the boundary lies. Um, it might be that rural parishes are more sensitive about enforcement issues than, than, than urban parish councils. But nevertheless, I, I have observed in my own experience a very significant increase in enforcement-related matters that are brought to my attention as a councillor. Um, I've always avoided trying to micromanage officers. I take the view that we set policy and officers then pursue uh, and implement that policy. That having been said, um, I'm very conscious of a frustration by some councillors around planning enforcement in particular, not so much in the case of licensing or environmental health or smoking in the worst workplace. And 
I would like to get a, an understanding of why we've configured enforcement the way we have. And I'm open to the explanation that planning should be responsible for planning and in the context of the large number or increasing number of planning applications and the challenges of the local plan, it might be appropriate in, in the officer's opinion for planning enforcement to be managed within a single enforcement function. But it's important in my mind that residents have confidence that we are approaching enforcement in the appropriate manner. I'm conscious also that every councillor believes that they are an expert when it comes to enforcement. They are absolutely convinced they know all about enforcement. But if you ask them to find and point to the enforcement strategy, which is the framework in which we operate, and point out the item within that strategy which allows you to enforce an item, then it does become rather more challenging. Um, that having been said, it is very frustrating when you do identify something which under the enforcement strategy we should be enforcing, and we are not enforcing because of something called expediency, which is the word that is brought forward. And, and the author of this report makes it quite clear that expediency is a concept that is extremely difficult for members of the public to understand and appreciate. And indeed, my own experience, councillors find it quite difficult. I found it quite difficult at times to cope with what is expedient. But I am conscious that it is always a judgment. So, for example, in my own ward, I had a business where there was a planning or a lack of a planning application, a complete disregard for the planning process, and a building was erected. Uh, and, of course, neighbours were extremely upset. But officers took a pragmatic view that if a planning application had been put in, it would have been granted and it was an appropriate thing for them to do a retrospective planning application. And it was a very successful local business that employed lots of people. And there are pragmatic answers to these solutions. So I recognise that, that we are layering complexity upon complexity. We have a policy with expediency added on top of it and judgment. So this makes it extremely difficult. There's also an argument that we should be resourcing it more and I am always very sceptical of anything that says the solution to a problem is to just throw more people at it. I've met with the enforcement team on a number of occasions. Um, Sonia Williams and her colleagues do an extremely good job in a very challenging environment. And it's been a pleasure to find out and share with some, them some of their successes around airport-related parking, parking, for example, uh, and environmental health and, and, and the like. And they point out that they can often only enforce where a breach is brought to their attention and people very, rare, very often wait a number of years before it is brought to their attention. Um, I also know anecdotally there is a, I won't tell you what, which pub it is, but there's a pub I don't often go to because the individual knows that I'm a district councillor and takes a very dim view of enforcement at this council, and his experience of is that we do enforcement well, which is a pleasure to hear, if that makes sense. Um, but anecdotally, I also hear that some 
councillors do not believe that we do rigorously enforce uh, and are attaching enough importance to enforcement. So it is a, a difficult position. I welcome the fact that scrutiny has identified enforcement as one of the areas that it wishes to look at. I hope this paper is helpful in putting some of the context in which scrutiny can look at that. I've always been a strong believer that scrutiny would benefit from looking at the internal services that we, we operate rather than the external services offered by others. I feel less strongly about that now I sit in the Cabinet, I've got to be honest, but the principle of it is that I agree with. Um, so I, I would welcome uh, Councillor Derek Jones' comments. Um, I think that we need to be seen to be doing enforcement. And as difficult as a concept of it as it is, I recognise it is not always possible to enforce things that people believe should be enforced. Neither do I believe that all breaches should be enforced, which is the view of a colleague, not in this room. I've had lots of feedback on, on, this, on this particular paper, more so than on Treasury management, I should point out. Um, so I would, welcome, I would welcome the views of Cabinet members and, and councillors on what enforcement means to them and how we can be seen to be doing it properly. Thank you very much, uh, Councillor Howell, and as you said, the recommendation is to note the report, but I call upon Councillor Jones, and thank you for coming to the meeting. Uh, thank you very much, Chairman. Um, well, first of all, everything that uh, Councillor Howell has said about the um, position of enforcement, uh, I fully support. Um, I do not think that, as a council, we do anywhere near enough enforcement. Despite that, the report before us uh, indicates very clearly that we've opened 466 planning enforcement cases since January this year. Um, the fact of the matter is, though, that very few of them have actually uh, resulted in actual enforcement action. There are still a lot of issues out there which are not being resolved. Now, um, the general public certainly expects more enforcement um, than this council takes action on at the moment. Um, there are issues all over the place, whether they be boundary issues, whether they be trees and hedgerows being taken out as part of development, um, whether they be cars displaying notices uh, that um, the, the business owner wants to buy up old vehicles, etc., etc. There are a number of issues around the whole district which uh, the public would expect us reasonably, quite reasonably in my view, to be taking action on uh, rather than to do nothing. Um, the enforcement strategy for planning um, was touched on um, a short while ago. Uh, the document which was adopted in June 2011 if one actually does read it, <coughs> seems to set the framework that we'll do everything possible to avoid taking enforcement action and we'll try and um, bring um, matters to a suitable close with um, miscreants uh, by negotiation. Uh, the simple fact is that all too often those negotiations don't meet the aspirations of um, those drawing the 
subjects to our attention. <coughs> there are very clear indications, I think, that the test of expediency is not understood, uh, and it, it sort of um, makes me wonder whether this council is either unwittingly or unnecessarily being complicit in allowing unsatisfactory situations to um, to continue in existence. Um, as an example of what I mean by that, <coughs> there's a current situation in a village in, in this district whereby a developer has removed a fence between a building site and a highway, has then built a building across that boundary line, uh, purportedly, and um, onto the highway land. Now, it's one thing, in effect, uh, doing it onto the highway land, which is a public authority, uh, and it is currently suggested, uh, but may not turn out to be the case, that it would be expedient to allow it if the highways authority doesn't um, take issue with it. Uh, however, if, if the situation was not of that particular transgression, was but from one plot of land onto a neighbouring plot of land, and we allow it in clear breach of the permission that has been given, i.e. to build on that plot and not to go beyond its boundary, then we are in effect being complicit in a situation whereby we're allowing one person, the developer uh, or a, um, a builder, to encroach onto a neighbour, setting up a problem for those people. Uh, and I really do not think that as a council we should be allowing that sort of thing when it's drawn to our attention if we can reasonably do something about it within the terms of reference for enforcement. So that's just a simple illustration of where things can go wrong and if we're not um, uh, rigorous enough, um, we, we actually just enable bad situations to go, uh, to go forward. Um, there's a whole raft of these things, so I'm not going to say much more other than to say that I welcome the opportunity to lead this role for the council because I do think it's one where uh, we can make a difference and uh, one which would be well, well received. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Councillor Jones. I've got Councillor Dean, Councillor Barker, but I will just offer yeah, the Chief Executive or um, the uh, Head of Legal Services to comment. Thank you, Chairman. If I can chime in first. I wasn't anticipating this assault on the enforcement service this evening. I saw an information item. Before I joined this council many years ago, I used to manage an enforcement team um, in East London, in well, London Borough of Havering, to be honest, which was partly urban and partly green belt and had a much higher workload than this council, much more significant breaches of planning control and a much better resource team. And the same, exactly the same issues apply. You can never enforce enough. And I think the planning system, the planning enforcement system, where, where most of the criticism is being concentrated tonight, is the most misunderstood area of council work. <coughs> Councillor Dean, for the benefit of listeners, has just spilt his water. Um, and made a mess on the floor. Um, it is not at all a bla as black and white as the public seem to think it is. 
Planning enforcement is governed, as Mr Perry will, under, um, will, will, will underline, by years of statute, case law, as well as government guidance on, on um, how to go about planning enforcement. And there was indeed, until relatively recently, uh, a, a council, uh, a government planning um, guidance document on planning enforcement. It is a very great area. Every case, like any planning application, has to be treated on its merits. And the test of expediency is essentially one of whether or not something complies with the policies of the development plan and if it does or doesn't, whether or not planning permission will be granted for it. And that's a very tall order. Every planning enforcement case is subject to planning appeal. It's not just a matter of the council serving a notice on somebody and them having to do it. They have the right of appeal and the planning inspectorate uh, will go through that very carefully as though it were, were a planning application. So it is nothing is straightforward. And I can walk you up Borough Lane, I expect, um, and show you two dozen planning contraventions just that exist with where people have got a slightly too high fence or a shed that's slightly in excess of permitted development limits. And you wouldn't even know they were planning contraventions, but they are. And so, you know, it is not by any means straightforward. Equally, um, it is a subject that is close to my heart. You cannot have a planning service or any other service that you're not prepared to underwrite with robust enforcement. And we do robustly enforce. Um, it is almost a failure to get to the point where you have to serve a notice. There's a negotiation process. You should be, in, should be able to negotiate the problem away if you have time. And so uh, it's only the exceptional circumstances that you get to um, enforcement notices. The test of expediency certainly could be better explained, but I never had any difficulty with it. Um, there is a public expectation that unfortunately the system does not live up to, and I think we, we can do all we can to communicate that, but the, the system is not as strong as it should be, and that is a national thing. We are, there was, 20 years ago, a proposal um, to make um, planning contraventions a criminal offence like uh, adverts or a criminal offence, for example, or works to a listed building. But quite, people quite quickly realised that, are you really going to make the little old lady who lives on the corner a criminal because she's put a shed that's slightly too big in her garden? No, nobody was prepared to do that. So they pulled back, it becomes a civil offence or civic offence. And the, the test is so much broader. There's so many more areas of, of uncertainty. So it's very unfair to really go for a service without realising the limitations that are placed on that service. And I think the structure we have works very, very well, given the limitations that we have to work under. That's what I would say. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Chief Executive. I, I will uh, give uh, you a chance, Mr Perry, but I suggest we take the two councillors uh, now. Councillor Dean and Councillor Barker. Yes, yes, thank you, Chairman. Must admit, when I saw this item on the agenda, I was puzzled and asked myself, you know, why is it there? I thought the Cabinet was here to make decisions, not to um, sort of have long uh, policy uh, scrutiny debates. And, and as <laughs> Councillor Howell has already mentioned, uh, this is the, or was decided in September, this is the top of the list for this year's uh, scrutiny programme to actually carry out a, a piece of work into, into scrutiny. So <laughs> to some extent we're getting things back to front and that the scrutiny is supposed to look into things that the Cabinet's responsible for and then to report to it and say, oh, you aren't doing it well enough. But however, you know, the, the report 
I'm sure can be used as a, a useful input to that, as well as the minutes of the meeting and, and matters that have arisen tonight. Uh, I could start and go on about matters in Sandstead, but I'm not going to do that. It's not appropriate. Um, so, wearing my chair of scrutiny hat, uh, I, I can assure you that um, that, that committee is, is keen to do a piece of work on this, what, it's, what the outcome of that will be, well, we haven't even decided the, the terms of reference, so uh, it's, it's too early to say. So if Councillor Howell or Councillor Jones wish to make some suggestions on what might be within the terms of reference, I'm sure, I'm sure we can look at that. But I think rather than – I certainly don't want to jump the gun into terms of making statements about what might or might not be uh, unsatisfactory at the moment, uh, but I hear what has been said by others who normally make decisions. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Councillor Dean. Councillor Barker. Uh, Chairman, just two things if I could. Um, the planning enforcement document that's been referred to, this was adopted in 2011, which was, of course, pre-NPPF. And I think if the scrutiny committee is going to have a look at this, it should have a look at it with that in mind of whether any revisions need to be made, because there are many more things now that are allowable without planning permission. That, although people feel that uh, somebody should have applied for permission, there's a lot more permitted development and some words might need to be moved around a bit. The other thing I'd just like to ask, um, reference was made by Councillor Howell to smoking, and we ever have responsibilities to smoking, smoking offences in the workplace or in a smoking-restricted vehicle. Um, as of 1st of October this year, I understand it's now an offence to smoke in cars with anybody under the age of 18 in a car. Um, is this our responsibility, or does it fall with the Highway Authority? Um. I call upon Mr. Perry to both answer the question and, um, and, and maybe he's got his own points to make. Thank you. Chair, yes, dealing with the, the latter question first, the enforcement of smoking with persons under the age of 18 is the responsibility of the police, uh, who have indicated they don't have sufficient resources to deal with it, um, and therefore it's unlikely that any fixed penalty notices or prosecutions will arise from that particular legislation. Um, with regard to the enforcement team, uh, there are a large number of enforcement files opened and they're all investigated and they all come to a conclusion. A large number of complaints are made because the public don't understand permitted development rights. Uh, they will see something being carried out and they will therefore report what they perceive as being a breach of planning control or investigation there is no breach. Where a breach is identified, there is then a discussion between the enforcement team and the planning team as to whether or not it's expedient to enforce. And it is a difficult concept, but basically we don't have power to take enforcement action if it is not deemed to be expedient. It would be um, unlawful for us to do so. So we have to make a decision, is it expedient to enforce or not? And if it is expedient, the first stage is to try and persuade the person who is in breach of planning control to remedy it. And that is very often successful. There is a very high percentage of cases that are resolved by negotiation. And it's only in the very last resort we will take enforcement action to secure compliance. But all the files are brought to a satisfactory conclusion before they're closed. Um, the only other time it is uh, an unsatisfactory conclusion would be if, following an investigation, we discover the matter statute barred. There are time limits on bringing enforcement action. We are reactive. We don't have the resources to go out patrolling the area um, on a daily basis. And therefore, if someone gets away with a breach of planning control for four years in the case of building or ten years in the case of a, a change of use, uh, they will get away with it, but there's not much we can do about that, I'm afraid, unless the public report it to us. 
Thank you very much. I don't see any other hands raised, so um, as I say, we're not voting on this, so I'll just try to bring this discussion to a conclusion. Um, the Cabinet member and the lead officer responsible for enforcement have uh, brought a paper back to Cabinet to remind us of the strategy um, and reiterated the importance that this administration holds around enforcement. Um, we've uh, heard the responses from the Chief Executive and the uh, Legal Officer and uh, clearly there is a context into which all of this sits. Um, so it is a balance, uh, but uh, I'll conclude by saying we do take enforcement very seriously and uh, we'll continue to work uh, with officers to get a solution that uh, is satisfactory to the administration and the residents of Uttlesford. I now call the meeting to a close at uh, 8.34 and thank you for your time.